And so if you'll take your Bibles and turn with me, uh, particularly to Genesis chapter 25. And I have any, I'm having you turn to Genesis 25 because that's sort of going to be our home base, because sort of central to what we're going to be looking at, but we're going to be looking around that entire area uh, as we continue our look at these threefold, the threefold office of Christ, of prophet, priest, and king. And again, we are looking at the kingly office and understanding how that, uh, that works its way out throughout what we call redemptive history. So when we look in, at the scriptures and we see how God is moving among his people, how he's moving uh, to bring about redemption throughout history, particularly in the scriptures, we call that redemption history. And we're seeing, in particular, these, these threefold office sort of brought through uh, throughout the entire Old Testament and the fulfillment in Christ and then the applications for us today. And so we saw that regarding the prophetic office. We saw that regarding the priestly office. And now we're looking at the kingly office. And so we are now looking particularly at the patriarchs as kings. And, of course, when you think of the patriarchs, who do you think of? Who's the first patriarch? Abraham is the first patriarch, and then we have his son, Isaac, and then Jacob. And then oftentimes, I think we miss this, but Joseph is also considered really a patriarch in the way that uh, as his children become two of the tribes of, um, of Israel. So look with me, Genesis chapter 25, and we're going to be, we'll go ahead and read verses 19 through 21. Genesis 25, 19 through 21. And then uh, we will, um, I'm sorry, it's supposed to be 19 through, tw- through um, 26. I'm not, I don't know why I have 21 in my notes, but 19 through 26. And then this will sort of be a jumping off point for us because it connects both the, the story and, and the message that we see in the life of Isaac, and then in particular how God works with Isaac's son, Jacob. So Genesis chapter 25, verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Armenian of Padam Aram, the sister of Laban, the Armenian, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger." When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we again thank you that as we look at these um, stories in the Old Testament that are not just stories, but this is what you have actually done among your people, it is a reminder to us of your faithfulness. Father, that you made promises uh, to Adam and Eve upon their fall into sin, and you continue to keep 
those promises, to send one who will fulfill the roles of prophet, priest, and king perfectly. And Father, we see that that promise is continuing to be kept through your promises made and fulfilled in the patriarchs. And so, Father, may we be encouraged, Lord, to learn from their example, both in the things that they did that were uh, um, according with their faith in you. May that be an example for us to follow. And also, Father, may we learn from their mistakes, Father, the ways in which they did not seek to know you. May we, Father, learn from that and seek to turn away from their foolishness so, Father, we can be more greatly used by you to spread the hope of Christ throughout this world. Father, work in our midst through your Spirit this evening. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. So we're going to begin looking today at Isaac and Jacob, and we'll see how far we get if we get through both of them or not. Uh, But we begin looking at Isaac and particularly looking at Isaac as a king. Now, again, what, when we left off last week, one of the things that we ended with was understanding the promise that God had made to Abraham, a promise that Abraham would have a child. And, of course, we talked about how Sarah was barren and how God kept that promise to him, even when Abraham and Sarah were in their advanced in age and were old, Yet, nonetheless, we see God keeping His promises to them. And so God honors the covenant He made with Abraham by providing an heir to the kingly role Abraham is called to have in Isaac. We have to remember that these promises that are made, they're not just made so that Abraham and Sarah would have children, although that is a great blessing. But rather, God is doing something greater even than that blessing in providing these children. He is keeping the promises to bless all nations through Abraham's seed. And so we see this in Genesis 21, verses 1 through 7. It says, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. So again, the reputation, the significance of God's faithfulness to his promises is here. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at a time at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him whom Sarah bore him Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was 8 days old as God commanded him. Abraham was 100 years old. When his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And so this this connection that Sarah speaks of of laughter takes us back to when the the three men came to Abraham and and the Lord was speaking through the one man and saying, "Look, you're going to have a child in a year." And Sarah's in the tent laughing. She's well beyond the age of childbearing. And now we see that promise fulfilled and here she is saying, "You know, God is working in an amazing way." I mean, most people will be laughing that this Elderly woman would be nursing a child, yet that is how God's grace works. He works in ways beyond our natural processes. He works in ways that go beyond what we think are possible. Our God is the God of the impossible. And so we see that confirmed here 
in Isaac's birth. Now, Abraham has a significant influence upon Isaac. Of course, he's his father. And of course, we don't see very much of the interaction between Isaac and Abraham in Scripture, but there is one particular account that is kept for us in Scripture, and that is the sacrifice of Isaac. And we tend to look at that from the lens of Abraham. We tend to look at it and see, well, this is what Abraham had done. This is how Abraham had had faith, and and we sort of focus there on him. But I think sometimes we neglect to look at it from Isaac's point of view. What we find is Abraham is displaying faith and submission to the Lord through his willingness to sacrifice his son, Isaac. Throughout this encounter where where Abraham comes and takes Isaac, he he has Isaac actually carry the the bundle of wood that he's taking up the mountain for sacrifice. He he leaves the rest of his family, leaves his servants at the bottom of the mountain and goes up. And throughout this, Abraham is teaching several things to Isaac. The first of which is he's teaching him submission to God's commands even when it doesn't seem like it's the right thing, even when from a human perspective, it doesn't appear to be the way that things should go. I mean, this is the son of promise. They've waited their entire years. Abraham is, their entire life, Abraham is 100 years old. He now has this son, and God says to him, I want you to take your son and sacrifice him to me. And yet through this, as Abraham is serving as the ruling, reigning sovereign of his family, he is displaying and teaching Isaac through his behavior what it means to truly be a king that submits to the Lord. I think that's something that we need to keep in mind when we go about our lives, particularly parents, as you walk before your children You know, it's one thing to tell your children something. It's something entirely different to to live that out before them. And so Abraham is showing what it means to be a sovereign, a king, a ruler who is submissive in obedience to God's commands. So he teaches him submission to God's commands. He teaches him faith in God's promises, even when, from all indications, it appears as though God's promises are being threatened. Abraham shows confidence and obedience, faith and obedience to the Lord in his sacrifice of Isaac. And he's teaching Isaac that. So much so that when, when Isaac questions him, Father, here's, I see the lamb and I see, or I, I see the wood and I see the knife, but where is the lamb for sacrifice? And what's Abraham's response? God will provide a lamb for the sacrifice. Such was the confidence of Abraham's faith that he knew God would provide what was needed. And so we see that as a a pattern set for what rulers should do. Trust the Lord, obey the Lord. And so we see God confirming His promises to Abraham and Isaac by commending Abraham's obedience and restating his promise that Abraham's kingdom would bless the world. We see that at the end of this sacrifice of Isaac in Genesis chapter 22. So, 
As Abraham nears the ends of, end of his life, he seeks to provide a son for, or seeks to provide a wife for his son. We continue to see Abraham acting as a sovereign or a ruler, even in this account. And again, we're not going to spend the time reading all the passages here. I'm sort of summarizing them. But essentially what he does is he instructs the servant of his household. This is likely the same person, Eliezer of Damascus, whom Abraham, when he went to the Lord, said, he's going to be my next heir. This is likely the same person. And what he does is he instructs the servant of his household to go and to find a wife for Isaac. Abraham is seeking to lead through as a kingly figure. And we also see him doing this for the sake of providing a continuation for his lineage. He knows that Isaac is not it. That Isaac is not the end of this promise to be a blessing to the nations. And so he seeks to provide for him. So he instructs his servant. And this is what I find even more so interesting. He instructs his servant to act in such a way that any wife that Isaac would receive would be divinely appointed. He doesn't, he doesn't tell him to go and, and, and to bring magnificent gifts and, and, and to, to bring and begin at the very beginning with that by saying, I'm Abraham, I'm the one who defeated these kings at, with, with Chedorlaomer, and, and I'm this powerful sovereign, and I have this great sort of nomad nation. I mean, he doesn't come to him with that. He just tells him to just... Find a woman who asks to feed the camels. And what he's doing there is he's placing the onus, he's placing the responsibility for Isaac's wife in God's hands. He's leaving it to the sovereign plan of God throughout this. The entire ordeal is a testament to God's providence. His fingerprints are all over the choice of Rebecca. For Isaac's wife. And so we see God sovereignly bringing Rebecca to Isaac, continuing to keep his covenant promise to Abraham and building a nation for him. And then we again see in Genesis 25, verses 19 through what we looked at today, 26, God providing and blessing. Abraham, or blessing Isaac and Rebekah, providing an offspring for them. Now, it's, it's interesting, again, we see some, some connections here and similarities with Abraham. Sarah was barren. Rebekah is what? Barren. Again, we see that, that the, the, the way in which God is providing for His people and keeping these promises is not through the standard ways that men, mankind would think of it. It's not through natural processes. He's showing His work as the one that is doing this. And so, he bless, so Isaac becomes blessed with God's promises. After they have um, Jacob, throughout Isaac's life, he, he, he settles in the area of Philistia. And while he's there in Philistia, in Genesis 26, verses 1 through 4, we see God again reiterating that promise. He says, Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. 
And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land. I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring these lands and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Again, we're noticing How is this blessing come? Was it somehow that Isaac was deserving of this blessing? No. It was purely by the grace of God that he sought to continue keeping the promises he made to Abraham. And so God continues to bless Isaac so that under that blessing, while he's among the the Philistines, he grows to acquire great wealth and possessions, eventually provoking the Philistines themselves among whom he lived to envy. If you look in verses 12 through 16 of Genesis 26, Isaac sowed in that land, so he obeyed what God said, and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. And then why does he do that? Was it because Isaac was a a great agricultural whiz? Is that why Isaac received all these blessings? No. The Lord blessed him, he says there in verse 12. And the man became rich, And gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds, many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled the earth, all the well filled and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. How, how is that happening? Well, how does Isaac achieve that level of recognition so that kings are recognizing that his kingdom, his family, is greater than their entire nation? How does that happen? There's only one explanation. The blessing of God. The work of God in his life. And again, this interaction with Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, shows that Abimelech is recognizing Isaac to be a ruler, to be a sovereign of sorts, to be a king of sorts, as God has blessed him. Again, this is going to be a theme that we see throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, that the the dominion mandate, the rulership that God has given to mankind, we attain that goal not by power, not by strength, Not by the might of our hands, but by fully and completely depending on God's work through us. We don't accomplish what we accomplish in life because of our innate abilities, our innate skills. We accomplish, we subdue, we have dominion because God is the one who blesses us to do so. It's not for us to look within ourselves. And so... That's pretty much all we see in the life of Isaac. I've always found it a little puzzling. I don't know why God did it this way, but we really don't know that much about Isaac's life. We know a little bit here and there. But very quickly, we run to Jacob. And we see Jacob as 
a, as a great example of how God is going to build his kingdom, build his people with Jacob as a king. And so this brings us back to what we were looking at, our text for this evening in Genesis chapter 25. And the first thing we see about Jacob is he had been determined to be a king from the womb. Jacob is set apart by God to be a king from the womb. Now, this kingdom that's being built, we see it a little bit with Abraham. Abraham is recognized as a king. He goes out to talk in the Valley of Kings after he defeated the armies of Chedorlaomer. We see it even more so with Isaac. He's accumulating wealth. The, the Philistines are saying that he's mightier than them. And so while the kingdom concept is present yet reserved in Isaac's story and even Abraham's story, it's when we come to Jacob that the kingly role is littered throughout his story. Here we really see this idea of the kingly role coming to fruition in Jacob's story and in Jacob's life. And we see that Jacob's kingly role is described before he is even born. In fact, we even see hints at the idea of subduing and exercising dominion in the struggle between Jacob and Esau in the womb. So if, if you see what's going on here, Rebecca, who has been barren her entire life, now her first pregnancy, what does she get? Twins. All right? Yippee. And what do those twins do? Are they, are they calm and, and quiet in her womb? No, they're wrestling with each other, essentially. It says they are struggling together within her. And she said, if this is going on, what is happening to me? I mean, she's flabbergasted at what's happening here. And of course, we know that what God says to her is that there are two what in her womb? Two nations. Not two children, although that's true, but rather Jacob and Esau are going to become rulers of what? Nations. There's a, the kingly role given to both of them in particular. God confirms that nations will come from Jacob and Esau. But here's the thing we see about how God is working. God does not work according to our ways. His ways are greater than our ways. And so notice what he says to her in chapter 23 of Genesis 25. Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. So who's the strong one here? Esau, the hunter, the, the conqueror, the one who is all completely hairy as he comes out. And yet the older shall, was the older going to be the king? Is he going to be the one? No, the older shall what? Serve the younger. I mean, this is striking. This is dramatic. This is shocking even. If you are growing up in, in Israel, you're, you're growing up and you're reading this and, and you understand the backdrop of the time of the patriarchs. I mean, even to this day, the legacy or, or the, the ruling power of a king passes to the firstborn right there's all this talk you know you just 
go out there. There are books being written by Prince Harry and talking about Prince William. And there's all this conflict between the royals over there. And here's the reality. Who's the, there's going to be a king coronated soon. Who's the next in line? The oldest. And so this is, this is what we generally think of is going to happen. But what does God say? The older is going to actually serve the younger. God is working in ways that are contrary to the traditions and patterns of men. I think what this should do for us, because it's not just an isolated incident here in Genesis 25 with Isaac and Jacob. I mean, this is what we see throughout the Scriptures. God does not do things the way we think He should do them. Praise God for that. Because how short-sighted, how limited, how, how, how incapable are we of truly being able to know what's best? God is omniscient. He knows how many things? Everything. He knows everything. He knows it perfectly. And so, even to this day, we struggle with, I, well, I wouldn't do it that way, Lord. Imagine the arrogance of a statement like that. I wish you would do X, Lord. When we've seen over and over again in Scripture, when we've seen over and over again, and even how God works in our lives, that He works oftentimes contrary to the patterns of mankind. What this also shows us is that the kingdom that He is building through Jacob is decidedly His kingdom. It's different all the way down to the biology and the precedent that typically governs such things. God is the one who is in control. He is the ultimate sovereign. He's the ultimate king. And so again, we see God turning back the traditions of men and keeping His covenant promises with Jacob. And this, if, if we go back, if we were to go back to Genesis chapter Two, the command to Adam and Eve, part of this dominion mandate as they exercise sovereignty and rulership over the world, as they are to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and what? Subdue it. And that subduing implies a struggle, that there's going to be difficulty. And of course, we talked about how it was likely a, a hint to them that the serpent was going to show up and try to tempt them. What do we have happening between Jacob and Esau in the womb? A struggle. And so even in birth, the struggle between these two leaders of nations is evident. Jacob grasps Esau's heel, seemingly pulling him back. No, I'm supposed to be first. This actually lends to Jacob's name, which literally means heel grabber and has come to become to mean supplanter or someone who circumvents. And again, it is important to note that supplanting was not of God's ways, but God had intended through Jacob to circumvent and supplant the plans and ideas of men. Again, God's sovereign providence, the plan of God in building His kingdom, choosing the patriarch king, Jacob, shows that it is of His choosing. 
not according to the way of men. So there's so much here in this first incident we see with Jacob. In his birth, he is, he is focused. He's going to be the leader of a nation. He's going to be a king. And even more so, he's going to be a king who is the, the child of promise, the king who leads the kingdom of God. Now, Jacob is rightly called heel snatcher because he is a supplanter. He is a circumventer. He is a shrewd king. And as we know, and we're going to sort of review some of the incidents in Jacob's life, is he known as the most honest, upright, upstanding person in Scripture? No. We see Jacob in many cases, going against God's own will, going against things that we know he ought not to do. And yet, God still chooses him as the leader of his kingdom. And and so what's going on here? I mean, is God rewarding Jacob's sinful actions? Well, the answer is, of course, no. And we'll look at why that's the case. But I think it's important for us to step back for a second and realize that one amazing reality of God's sovereignty is that he can use even the wickedness of men to accomplish his purposes. That's how powerful our God is. He can use men who seek to go against his plan to actually accomplish his plan. The the one thing that is absolutely futile in this world is to resist the Lord God Almighty. Nothing will stop his purposes. See this in Psalm 76:10. Surely the wrath of man shall what? Praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. It, it, it's so commonplace for God to, to use what men do wickedly that it's like he's putting on his belt and going to use it to accomplish his purposes. Acts 2, 23, one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Jesus is delivered up. Peter is saying this according to whose plan? God's plan, the foreknowledge of God. And it is a definite plan. There's no question that this is what God meant to happen. It wasn't like the the, the crucifixion of Christ was some sort of plan B. This was always what God had planned to do. But how does he accomplish it? It's done according to God's definite plan and foreknowledge, but it's done by people crucifying and killing Christ through what? Lawlessness. They crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And so when we look at Jacob's life, we see him as the one who God has chosen to build his nation, his people with. We must never forget that God uses Jacob in spite of his sinful actions, not because of them. In fact, in all things, we have to realize, as James tells us, that we are never to say, when we are tempted, we are being tempted by God. God himself cannot be tempted with evil, neither does he tempt any man. He himself tempts No one. So although God allows sin, His allowance of sin does not mean He condones it. 
I think this is a question that oftentimes will come up. You know, you, you look at, you look at even with um, Jacob, all right? How many wives does Jacob end up having? Not one, multiple wives. We see this with David. How many wives does David end up having? Not one, several. Solomon has so many wives. And so when we see those things and we see the people that God is using going against his plan, it's not his approval. It's just showing that God is greater and sovereign even over the evil of men. And he uses it to bring about his good purposes. Let me tell you, that is a much better outlook on life than the alternative. The alternative being that God is not in control and that evil is running rampant outside of his control. Now, I know at times it may seem like that's the case in our society today. I think we're living very, in times very similar to the times of the judges where men called evil good and called good evil. We're there today. And we can look at that and it can, it can cause us to be concerned. We can, we can bemoan what's happening here in this country. We can bemoan what's happening in other countries. We can look at that and, and it can cause all sorts of, of anxiety within us. But is our God still not on the throne? He is. And so even as men act wickedly, even as Jacob acts wickedly, and, and here's the wonders of our God. Even though He holds us responsible for our sinful actions personally, they still cannot thwart His perfect plan, even in our own lives. When we come to the end of, of Jacob's life, we look at what he said, in fact, there's, there's this, uh, I think, I think it's, it's when he's before Pharaoh or he says something and Jacob just makes the comment, behold, I am old. Like, it's just this, this great comment in Scripture he notes. At the end of that, he is someone who recognizes to some extent what God has done. He sees the fingerprints of God on his life. He also doesn't necessarily respond the right way either. I'm getting way ahead of myself. But all, all I'm trying to point to is that even our own sinfulness God works to bring about his good plan as Paul says in Romans chapter 8 for good God works how many things all things and that gives us great hope particularly as we see the shrewdness of Jacob as a king so what is this shrewd king like? Well, we see Jacob shown to be shrewd, manipulative, and dishonest. And yet God still uses him to accomplish his purposes. How is Jacob shrewd and manipulative and dishonest? Well, we see first of all, he seizes on opportunity and exploitation to gain Esau's birthright. What we see here in Jacob's focus is not a focus on loving his neighbor. Remember the two great commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Who is Jacob loving when he swindles Esau out of his birthright? Himself. We see a clear concern for himself rather than a care for his brother. I mean, his brother's been out hunting. He's hungry. 
And so he takes advantage of his hunger. He, he um, exploits that weakness in Esau for his own advantage and uses it over him. Now, it could also be argued that Esau is not properly valuing what God has blessed him with, that birthright. But again, go back to what God said to Rebekah as they're in the womb. The older shall what? Serve the younger. I mean, we see this happening even here. Now, Jacob is fully responsible for what he's done here. And there are consequences for Jacob down the line because of the way he's treating his brother. But nonetheless, God is keeping his promises. So he seizes on an opportunity and exploitation to gain Esau's birthright. And Esau sells him his birthright for a bowl of stew. Must have been really good stew. Secondly, we see that Jacob lies to the Philistines regarding his wife. What is it with these patriarchs and saying to their wives, you're my sister? Abraham did it twice. Now here's Jacob among the Philistines doing the same thing. You know, you're beautiful. I mean, what kind of compliment is that? Ladies, how would you like it if your husband came to you and said, oh, you're so beautiful. I'm afraid people are going to steal you from me, so let's just be siblings. It shows a lack of trust in God's plan, a lack of confidence in what he's promised. And so following after the foolishness of his grandfather, I, um, uh, Jacob is caught lying about his wife. We also see that in league with his mother, he lies to his father to receive the blessing. Now, again, the promise that God made that Jacob will be the one who will, who will rule over Esau, we see this being accomplished through this deceptive act. But something I don't think we really consider is, could not God have accomplished it through another means? I mean, we saw the same thing happen with uh, Abraham and Sarah. Sarah said, I'm supposed to have this child. I haven't had this child. So here, take Hagar. And so Abraham takes things into his own hands to accomplish what God has promised to accomplish. Listen, nothing ever good comes when we take God's plan into our own hands and seek to force our way through it. And so we see, a, really, a rift that's going to develop within this family. Jacob in league with his mother. Perhaps she's acting in a similar way to Sarah, afraid that the blessing God promised to Jacob would, not, would be given to Esau, seeking to help God's plan along, lies to his father, and he receives the blessing. This, of course, enrages Esau, and, of course, also causes even concerns in, in the way in which um, Isaac continues to relate to them both. Now, here's the thing, all right? God can use our sinful actions to accomplish His purposes. There's no doubt about that. But God holds us responsible for sin, and God brings consequences for sin. All of Jacob's deceit brings damage along the way. What we end up finding is that 
through his lie about his wife, he's driven from the land of the Philistines. He enrages both his father and his brother through his deceit, and he's set at odds for almost the entirety of his life against his brother, who now hates him. These are not just secondary details in these stories. They are the result of not trusting God's way, but leaning to your own understanding. When we push our way through, when we get what we want, by our means it brings damage. Yes, God granted what Jacob was seeking. He got what he wanted. But sometimes getting what you wanted, in fact, many times, any time that you get what you want apart from God's plan, always brings consequences. And Jacob ends up losing greatly throughout. We even see this in the way that his sons act later on in life regarding how his daughter was treated. So what's the, what do we take away from Jacob as a shrewd king? I think one thing we can look at, first of all, is that oftentimes we're very like Jacob, aren't we? Oftentimes we figure out how we can manipulate or or control situations. I mean, we, we all want to be in control of our lives. And that's the reality of the difference between trusting God and trusting ourselves. Who is in the driver's seat of your life? Is it you or is it God? And our God is so gracious that even when we try to take control of our lives and make mistakes, He still accomplishes the purposes He has for us. But it doesn't come without consequences. Sometimes lifelong consequences. So we can learn from Jacob, seeing how he's very much like us and seeking to not be like him, but to rather place our lives completely in the hands of our good God, who has made promises to us, who has promised that he will never leave us nor forsake us, who has promised that if he has gone to prepare a place for us, what will he do? He will come again and receive us to ourselves. And so as we're going to see on Sunday mornings in 2 Peter, Peter says, so get ready. Considering that the world is going to be dissolved and burned up, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of godliness and holiness? We need to live out our faith, not leaning to our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledging Him And then when we do that, He, what does He do to our paths? He directs them. He guides us as a good and loving God. Well, next week, we we don't have the time to jump into it tonight, but next week we'll jump in and we'll see Jacob. Yes, he's been a shrewd king, but we'll also see him as a blessed king. And then we'll spend some time looking at his reign. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. Lord, we thank you for Jacob's, um, Jacob's life. 
We thank you, Father, that you are a God who keeps your promises not because of us, but in spite of us. And Father, we find hope and, and, and joy in that reality because you will be faithful to what you've promised. You were faithful to Abraham, you were faithful to Isaac, and we'll see and are seeing how you're faithful to Jacob. Lord, may we cast aside dependence on ourselves and look fully and completely on you trusting in your ways, depending upon you in all things. Father, take your word, apply it to our hearts and lives here this evening. May we go from this place different than when we first came in. We pray this in Christ's precious name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thanks for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.